my first advice to her younger self is, it's a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun to learn different Kung Fu from five different masters. Strangely enough, I concluded that I could not be any one of the five. I have to be different, but they stimulated me to discover what would be this 70 year old Sun Good, better, and different. I have to find what that is. That is the benefit of having five mentors. The other thing that I found very interesting is that there are some principles that is obviously resonating with the values that were there, but you are less conscious. Therefore, very quickly, if this allows this mentor to go that far in the world, maybe I have a chance by hanging on to it, no matter how much uh, I was down, kicked and beaten up, I could still get myself up in the hope that maybe there's a good turn or event that holding on to those values survive. That's very helpful to my journey. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseah.com. Meet Rinkas, your go-to digital mortgage platform breaking down financial barriers for home seekers across Indonesia and Southeast Asia. They operate in more than 15 cities in partnership with all major Indonesian banks and premier property developers. Rinkas is on a mission to democratize homeownership and create over 100 million new homeowners. Don't just dream about owning a home, make it a reality. Explore more at www.rinkas.co.id. Hey, Sun Yen, I'm excited to have you on the show. You've recently written a book on leadership, and I'm very fascinated to hear a little bit more about why you put it together and your journey. So could you introduce yourself real quick? Well, I probably am one of your oldest interviewee. I've been in business 45 years and thought that this would be a good time to codify something that's very instrumental in my journey so far. And I have taught school about it, but also have worked with all descriptions of executives and younger people who are not executives, like doctors, nurses, engineers, on their influence, influence skills. And therefore, I felt that I have basically want to get this out in the world beyond the narrow confines of my client activity, which tended to be one-on-one -on -one or one to a small group of people. Great. And you've had a long career as well that you mentioned in terms of business. Could you share a little bit more about what that career looks like? Simply put, 30 years with McKinsey, first ethnic Chinese of any description, never mind Singaporean, who joined McKinsey. And then after retirement, started Linhart, and that has been coming to 15 years ago. So that is the brief and did a lot of things in McKinsey, which I wouldn't want to elaborate. But uh, I will say this. If I had known that I was the one and only ethnic Chinese in essentially the global firm, I'd probably be scared to death and drop out within a year. 
30 years with McKinsey. My wife is also a former McKinsey uh, alumnus. Okay, and cool. I was at Bain. So thank you for forging the way. She was definitely not the first ethnic Chinese woman to be in McKinsey by then. Wow, it's wonderful. So what's interesting is that after McKinsey, you've obviously gone on to be on the board of many organizations from Sony to Duke NUS Medical School, the Singapore International Foundation, uh, Dyson, <laughs> Sing Health. Menu Life, Singapore Airlines. Um, so when you think about this board role, that's something that people have been curious about. What is that transition, right? So McKinsey, there's consulting, but what does the board, from your perspective, what's the relationship with the executive and management team? Well, when I started to really try to help CEOs and founders and owners, I think McKinsey is CEO and down, essentially. They might communicate with the board very occasionally. I felt that to really understand the forces, the pressures on a chief executive, I need to really understand how boards work. It's not theoretical. It's not the principles of governance. It's in practice. I may have overdone it because I went on boards that were on five stock exchanges around the world in, in addition to Singapore Stock Exchange and a bunch of NGO boards. Because then you take, for example, on people compensation-related issues, you string it together, I have about 35 years of experience in that. So really helped my work. But of course, you say, do you really need all that? I, I don't think so. What have you found has been one of the challenges of serving in a board role? From your perspective, one is multiple board roles. That's one. But what skills did you have to change or be different or change your approach? I had the mindset in the first board, which was Sony and Singapore International Foundation on the NGO side to say, you know what? I don't think about the board fees at all. I think about, hey, I have basically an arena uh, to practice my influence. How do mm -hmm. I get Japanese colleagues on a publicly listed iconic company like Sony to really accelerate this change? And uh, we mm -hmm. went through a very turbulent period. Uh, thank God that uh, Sony pulled through on the other side. Mm -hmm. It was quite instrumental in working with the board committee that had oversight on the CEO evaluation and pay and ultimately the contract. And therefore, I learned a lot about influence, how to influence my colleague. Literally, I was called outside director. That you have directors <laughs> who are all Japanese and you have outside directors, myself and one other British person. So as outsider, how do you work with colleagues? Because I find generally, now speaking away from Sony, the boards is a very blunt instrument. You hire, fire, reward, punish the CEO. You pine and influence the strategy. You're non-executive. Mm. Therefore, the, the instrument is very blunt. And if you meddle too much and cross the line, mm. then management is basically running around all day just to answer questions from the board. Mm. If you don't influence and have adopted a benign neglect, things can go really wrong. And in many jurisdictions, such as Singapore or United States, you can go to jail and without stealing money or cheating. Yeah. You, you're not doing your job. And it's a criminal offense if you don't read the, read the fine lines in the, in the rules. That's an interesting phrase, benign neglect. Could you share more about what that means from your perspective? It's, people go and sit on board sometimes for the wrong reason. They think it is a prestigious thing to do after retirement of active service. So they go there, they opine, they, they see where the direction of the conversation goes. And um, you don't think about uh, your 
two things it's mm. very easy to neglect one your food to all stake all shareholders not just a majority shareholder or right. the or sometimes the owner second is that you follow the crowd of where the thinking is going and stop challenging the broad direction and discomfort you have right let's talk about that discomfort why is that discomfort from your perspective Discomfort is, it's easy to not raise the opposing view. You might just opposing raise view. a question. It's a lot easier to say yes to right. the motion because there's a long set of things that the boards have to do, for example, auditing the accounts mm-hmm. and pay the executives and deal with reporting and the listed company to the public, etc. And mm. discomfort meaning that it may be you're the only one who sends it as a weak signal. Problems usually come not in front of it, but hit you in the face. Usually come mm. in the environment, at least in my <laughs> walk in the forest, mm. as weak signals. Right. Like we keep losing money on the, on this particular product. And yet mm. year after year, we haven't even seen a proper board discussion on it. So that is telling you, and then, you know, it's never on the agenda. So you can just right. process, show up and process the agenda, if you will, and right. do the duty of reading the paper, sometimes a thousand pages. Weak signals mean that it is the scene of omission, what is missing from the agenda mm. that they say, hey, why don't we talk about this? And it may be an inconvenient question as innocent as it sounds. I was taken aside once by the chairman of a board and then say, and that was not a friendly comment. I said, what, what is it not a friendly comment? You, we've been losing money on this product for so many years. Isn't it reasonable for me to request mm. management for a proper review? And so that's what I mean by uncomfortable. It's not easy to, to be the minority voice in the room. I think it's interesting that somebody would ask you to step aside and say, hey, that wasn't a friendly comment. So I think there's a desire to be friendly to manage. Friendly to where the chairman wants or the majority owners, representatives tell you they they want out of the situation. Yeah. So how does that conversation happen? How do you build that relationship or trust or conversation with other bots? Because yes, there's a vote perhaps that you could have sometimes, but what is that process from your perspective? I think that is why if you structurally the board processes are well known. You have two committee meetings and then you report to the main board for approval or by the entire board, such mm. as the recommended bonuses for management. So if you think that there are things the company is facing that is very crucial, it is really in the coffee chats, in the dinner the night before, the social time that you have an opportunity to sound out your colleagues and say, are you feeling the same thing I'm feeling? Mm. Which is, we are given the, the Walt Disney version that we are not facing up to this uh, issue that is staring us at, at us. The other side is also possible, which is sometimes when things are really bad and board colleagues want to punish the management for not delivering on the results, I would also try and say, in my view, I think we were overly generous when the results were great because of environmental reasons, not management doing. And now, I don't think management did a great job in a ter- terrible market. We should not punish. It's easy to go to yeah. the AGM and no shareholders is going to push against you. If you say, listen, oil prices are down and COVID around and we lost right. our shirt. Well, everybody in industry lost its shirt. So right. why shouldn't we punish the management? What is it? Wait a minute. It's all relative to the general trend. Did management right. did something really 
heroic to create a differentiated result. And that requires the courage, but also the influence skill to be able to, if you saw, wait a minute, I disagree. I vote. You already get a vote to doubt. Let's go on to the next item. You know, basically, what are you going to do? I say, wait a minute. You can do that once or twice, but you do that on every item. The chairman will now take you aside and say, we will not nominate you again. I mean, we, we are both Harvard MBA alumni. And obviously yes. the joke that they always have is when the environment is going well, it's all due to management contributions. And when things are going badly, it's all due to environmental issues. So how do you think about attribution dynamic from your perspective? How would you think about passing that from your perspective? Because every time the results are good, management team is like, this is all we, the things we did. And then when things are bad, it's like, this is all the environmental competitors from that perspective. So, I mean, I think there's nothing to do with management teams. It's just a natural human okay, impulse. I can't go through right. that as well. First of all, it behooves the directors to really do work to understand the industry. So we take Scoot, for example. Culturally, it's much easier for you and I go start an airline. I mean, whether that's mm. a wise or not, it's beside the point. Then for a branded premium airline like Singapore Airlines to start. So when right. management is able to create the subculture, when I visited the mm. uh, school the first time I became a director, I was quite uh, happy that they mm. had a very modest office one room in the terminal, uh, in one of the terminals in Changi, and right. no private walls, and everybody is in very scratchy fighting mode and mm. great morale. And I say, wow, management who led it did something really good. And right. we bro broke even in no time. Now, to me, right. easy to say, listen, we had all the help from the parent airline, yeah. but wait a minute, how many low cost airline was able to make money. They may be uh, chasing each other and cutting prices by the end of the day. That makes a lot of work. I'm so curious because you graduated from Harvard with your MBA in 1980 and that's 43 years ago. Time flies. I'm just so curious. Would, would your younger self have envisioned who you became today? I'm so curious over 43 years. What things have stayed the same and what things have changed from your perspective? If you remember what you were like when you were in 1980. Well, number one, then it's easy to talk about the things that are constant. Number one, everybody tells me that I'm very curious. And I was curious then to join a business that nobody in my family, extended family, understood what it was. McKinsey, they say, what do they do? Forecast GDP. That's the extent of the response. Why did you get a proper job in a bank? Is basically the response I got. But I was curious because you are curious. You do certain things that you wouldn't have done. So for example, I tell myself, nobody tells me that. Never give the same speech twice. And you know what that means? That means every same time the topic, I'm the go-to person on the CEO transition. But if I give the same speech, I won't be motivated to be at a cutting edge. But if I tell myself that was fine last time, but what have you learned lately that you can think about this? Say, I was a late, later part of the pandemic. I was on a, a panel with, with Piyush Gupta and Jessica Tan, two of our famous CEOs. And the topic was driving strategy growth post COVID normal. And when it came to my turn, I was the least famous of the three. I say my difficulty in the first place is that I don't believe that there will be a normal. It is not going back to the old normal. Things will be different in at least two ways. One is you end up with a different normal. That's one possibility. The other one is we'll never settle down to a normal because some other stuff is going to hit us. Sure enough, if you even if you don't read the papers and look at the climate and look at the geopolitical and so on. So we are living in a world where there is no normal. Tomorrow is a new normal. The day after is another one again. <laughs> so how do you think about strategy? I can't 
they show what I learned in HBS 1980. It doesn't work. So curious, allow me to challenge myself, allow me to expect change. And as all my bosses in McKinsey said to me, Sun the one thing that for sure is you are always forward-looking. That's amazing. And on that note, from what people told you, I think what was the best advice you ever received and who and why from your perspective? I actually have five best advice I got from my five mentors. So that my first advice to my youngest self is, it's a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun to learn different Kung Fu from five different masters. And I was not out. Strangely enough, I concluded that I could not be any one of the five. I have to be a different, but they stimulated me to discover what would be this 70-year-old Sun Yat. Uh, good, better, and different. I have to find what that is. But that is the benefit of having five mentors. And the other thing that I found very interesting is that there are some principles that is obviously resonating with the values that were there, but you are less conscious. Mm. And therefore, very quickly, you say, if this allows this mentor to go that far in the world, maybe I have a chance by hanging on to it, no matter how much uh, I was down, kicked, when I was down and beaten up, I could still get myself up in the hope that maybe there's a good turn or event that holding on to those values survive. So that's very helpful uh, to my journey. Yeah. You also give advice to other folks, right? You've been building out this coaching business for so many years. You've coached CEOs and so many uh, people in the industry. And I think you started to codify this, obviously, in your book. Uh, what is a key framework that you think about how you coach or support or have counsel business leaders? Uh, first of all, Coaching is one, only one of eight things I do. Uh, I don't think I'll, I'll, I'll survive if just being a coach because at the very end of what I do, which is uh, focusing on founders, owners, and CEOs, coaching is fantastic for a 27-year-old and say, you know, what do you want to be when you are fully fleshed out and mature? Or if you don't get along with your boss or don't like the company, what is so big deal about switching? But if you're putting 30 years in a company, coming up for the last lap, to become a CEO succession candidate. That's a different story. So I think that's the first thing that is different from what I do because in that oddly enough, very mm. short time frame, the more senior you are, the day of reckoning is always very close by, very counterintuitive. When you're 27 years old, as I say, you have all the latitude to make mistakes mm. and quit or, or find another mentor, sponsor, whatever. But where's so the first thing is, therefore, coaching is never enough at the top end. This is a misunderstanding in the market. So what else is important? You have to catalyze. There are things that the senior executive in the short two years, they are reckoning, has to make happen. Not just deliver, but somebody who is an introvert, who is otherwise fantastic leader, he or she is going to miss the brass ring simply because if you will say you put him into the Shangri-La boardroom for a cocktail and he will stay, you find him in the same spot an hour later. So... Does he look like a CEO? Nah, right? But I'm there to sort of say, wait a minute. I stand for truth and light. Right. And you guys are judging the book by the cover. My job is to A, un uh, go inside the, the, the book and tell you uh, the different qualities of this uh, uh, leader and work with them to see if we can overcome that. Now, I can't right. make an introvert into an extrovert, but I can help the person increase the extrovert. And therefore, I catalyze and I advocate 
we all know about advocacy. Coaches don't do that. It's against the, the rules of the ICF, the International mm-hmm. Coaching Federation. But I do. So when you say that it's like against the rules to coach, you're also catalyzing and you're advocating. What does that combination look like from a client's perspective? It's like you get outcome-oriented and you say in one year, 18 months, pick a horizon. And you say, what is it that uh, is reasonable to expect yourself being able to do consistently, behave consistently? How do you want your stakeholders uh, to see you? They see you this way. You can go around to a landscape, if you will, of what the landscape of perception. And then what would that uh, perception, if I go do the same exercise or interviewing a third of the board or your uh, peers, your immediate and your customers, and then say a year from now, what are the defining headlines? And I will be there to say, well, no, that's not the realistic, frankly. That's nice, but frankly, you don't have to do that <laughs> to win the race. Yeah. So given that, then I will say, here's the things you need to do. Let's talk about right. uh, me stimulating you or give you ideas or put you in front of other CEOs I have worked with. So for example, if you're a first-time CEO, Jeremy, there are lots of things going on. And it is good to sit down for dinner with five other first-time CEOs that I work with. And the dinner is about not great CEO leadership. It's about, hey, what mistakes did we make in the first year? What about people? How many can I afford to change? How many must I keep? How do I motivate everyone? Because I needed everyone to row in the same direction. So there are common themes and how you manage the stakeholders. Stakeholder management in the CEO office now around the world, not just Singapore, but Singapore is no exemption. It has gotten very complex in the last five years. How has it gotten complex over the past five years? Well, the average industry, I'm talking aggregated a lot, you may have your board of directors. You may have a significant shareholder. You may have a regulator. If you're a telco, you are regulated by IDA. If you're a hospital, you'll be regulated by MOH, etc. If you're airline, CAS, etc. But now, mm-hmm. with all the, t- the turbulence and volatility, it's not just a regulator talking to you. First of all, you have very irate customers who don't get their bags if you don't have the bags loaded. And if you are uh, under great financial distress, not just the financial markets. Markets don't uh, come to help just when you needed the most help. You had to find creative ways uh, to reach out to stakeholders. So that's, I would say, the, the period of the last five years, the complexity of managing stakeholders have increased maybe tenfold, to put it conservative. Mm. On that note, could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? My colleagues will tell me that I may be foolhardy, but I am very courageous and I've been brave all the time. <laughs> but I can tell you a few quick anecdotes. One was when I was a second year associate at McKinsey. By the time I reached the client site, which is in Norway, the McKinsey team was told to pack up when the chief technology which was a equipment manufacturer. So the technologist is a great engineer and he's a great in- inventor, if you will. Can be getting along with the CEO, doesn't, not enough. We were told to pack our bags. So since I incurred big, great expense to show up, the partner said, why don't you take at that time the document hmm. and see whether you can go into the lion's den and t- take him through it and he may change his mind and uh, not veto our, our project. So I went in there, and so what have I got to lose, right? I mean, everybody else was uh, thrown out, if you will. Hmm. I went in there, and the first thing he saw me, he said, you must be very good in your math. I was like, well, where did that come 
I got a seven in the O-level math. And in Singapore terms, that's pretty bad. And at my age, I don't mind talking about it. So I say, where did you get that impression? I just showed up. He's all saying, oh, I have a Malaysian wife. And they tell me that we send our kids in the younger days to Singapore for private education. And the people in Singapore, their math, math is fantastic. And, you know, started talking yeah. for four hours. Three hours was about personal things. And it was not intentional. I was just reacting to the first reaction. Right. They were expecting a white face and here comes a Singaporean. So at the end of that, I say the executive summary, at least I have to take through, take you through because otherwise I can't uh, say I discharge my duty. By the, the second sentence of the executive summary, he says, let's not waste time. You go tell your partners that so long as you're on the team, we will use McKinsey. <laughs> So, wow. in fact, my stay in Scandinavia was extended for the full year. It was a three-month project. Right. And I had to become a project manager thanks to that guy. But then the rest of the time, I was living up to his kind thoughts and confidence, which I would say today, unearned. Right. I spent the rest of the time earning that confidence and trust. But I was unfaced. I could have been crapping in my pants going in there because I was very junior. I was 14 months with the firm. So, wow. Life is full of stories like that. You say you have more stories as well. I'd love to hear another story. Okay. Well, I have the stupidity or whatever it is to walk up to the shareholders committee at McKinsey and propose to him that, hey, for every hour of service that we have with our clients, there's another hour lurking out there, which if we, is an entirely black continent. I started to give my views about the future of advice, not the future of consulting, because consulting is a subset of advice. And all the different players and so on, you see, if you look at not which law firm is doing, which, uh, shall we say, professions are doing well, well, the accountants are doing well, the top lawyers are doing well, by name, the very best lawyers in Singapore, the very best accountant in Singapore. And you, you can go to IRAs and check how much money they make. And they are fantastic. You don't get to know them. They can pull rabbits out of the hat. It's not just that they sit there and work their associates uh, hard. They are fantastic in pulling rabbits out of the, the hat, out of personal experience, by the way. It makes these people great. And that came to one point, regardless of consultants, accountants, or lawyers. And that is that they can treat their clients as people. People have needs. And you just don't treat them as businesses, as a, a cardboard a picture with a stamp across the face that says CEO. And you start talking to that cardboard as opposed to the, the person behind it. Right. And I say, I try very hard to get them to see that. It was not entirely successful because they felt that it's a lot easier to teach associates how to analyze that teach associates how to understand and work with human beings. There are many stories of during the financial crisis that my colleagues asked me to go and help with a leadership situation. These are highly personal stories, some of which got into the book and I obviously recommended. But one that comes to my mind was a very famous Korean tribal. The chairman who made the tribal uh, what it is today mm -hmm. told me, Sunian, I keep telling your partners and they don't understand. Maybe you can help since they say that you are different, a little bit wild and woolly. So I have only one son. And by the time he's 40, arguably 45, he's me. I don't want him to be non-executive. I want him to be like me, executive right. chairman, to direct the company and not just be a shareholder and collect dividend. So it's a single pass 
no fail assignment. If you know CEO is well, what's the worst case? You can change the CEO. You have a succession. You have a people within the company that you can choose or outside. But if you're a family business, I say, oh wow, single pass, no fail. Where, where did I hear that before? It was in this blasphemous of a steel making business. You charge the iron ore and slack into the blasphemous, and if you made a mistake, you cast the bars instead of plates. What do you do? You send it to the blast furnace and melt it down for another pass. Well, if I only have one son, he's now 32. By the time he's 48 years from now. So his question is, can you help me? He said, well, I never done that before. Because I don't give any guarantees. He said, number two, would you be around for 10, 15 years to see this one? And then, then I made up my mind whether I was with McKinsey or not. I'm going to see this one through. Now, it takes uh, personal courage uh, to to have situations like this and say to myself, if I want to be, if I were not brave, if, because I'm curious, how do I have make the best of a situation? I have not come across any clients whose son didn't pass high school or two at university. They all gone to the best schools. That's par for the course. But what makes the difference? You got Goldman, you got McKinsey of this world now routinely handle a great number of uh, wealthy families, Sions. But what is it that I can do for them that is really working with the raw material of the human being right. and ex- let those qualities express themselves in a way? And would I have the courage to be able to push back and say, you know what? No, the best expression for him is sorry, not in your company as much as it is a big chai ball, but something else. What do I do with that? Those kinds of things, it helps to have the experience of being able to go back before I sign on the dotted line for the 10-year engagement. Is to say, you know what? May I reserve the right? Because I never met you before. I have not mm. yet been introduced to your son, but can I get mm. two wishes that you have to promise me? Number one, anytime I think you are the problem, I will come back to you. You are stopping him from being the best he can be. Right. You're going to hear from me. And you promise me that you are not going to shut me down. You've got to listen because I don't say those things lightly because it is, it will really test whether you are truthfully trying very hard to pass this on to your son or daughter. And I have to tell you that there are cases in which the older generation is having so much fun, so much power to play with. Theoretically, who doesn't want to invest a little bit uh, yeah. for the son or daughter? But at the moment where you think, yeah, if you're doing such a great job that the children are pressing against the older generation, they say, when is that going to check out? Well, yeah. I can see very uh, ugly power play come in. That, I mean, not all the time, but I'm telling you, being brave is not so much, if you sign up for advice, here are the five things you do. That's right. one thing. Being brave is being able to cite the risk and then after, afterwards hold them to their word. Yeah. On that note, thank you so much for sharing. I'd love to summarize the three big takeaways I got from this conversation. First of all, thank you so much for sharing uh, all your experience of being on the board of so many illustrious companies, but also being both strategic about what the real conversations are, about what the real attribution of results are, and what the real role of a board member is, and also actually going into the tactics about it, making sure that I have the conversations the evening before and the dinner, having the side conversations about being the contrarian voice, about not being afraid to speak up when you see something that's there. So really uh, great encapsulation lessons there. The second, of course, is thank you so much for sharing about your perspective on coaching and consulting and how you think about the advice and advisory that you need to do to do that. Right? You shared so many different uh, aspects about how you've done that. 
in your own career, but also in the context of building this coaching business. And now you've encapsulated that in your book, Positive Influence, which is available on Amazon and booksellers. So make sure to check it out and uh, read about all the lessons there, about what it needs to do to uh, get leadership to the next level, especially when there's a difference between coaching for young people who have the opportunity to quit or change jobs or change uh, careers versus I think senior executives who have to, like you said, reach out and grab the brass rings there. Lastly, thank you so much actually for sharing about your own personal experiences. I found that really fascinating to hear about what you were like, the fact that you're always curious from a young age and a young executive to also your personal stories in terms of uh, being so brave to um, walk that room and uh, just chat for four hours, even though there was nothing left to lose, but you still went for it. Uh, and I thought it was a really great story. And I think it's also interesting to hear about your later conversations and engagements about negotiating that space and agreement with uh, senior executives about what needs to do in order for change to happen. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jeremy, for having me. This was uh, totally spontaneous. And thank you for making me talk naturally. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.